Another edition of Behind the Lens. Uh, it is Monday, July the 10th already, midway through July. Uh, I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. Uh, but you can find my movie reviews, interviews, and a whole lot more 24-7 on my website, BehindTheLensOnline.net, in print, and online in other publications throughout the globe. But every Monday, you can find me right here on Adrenaline Radio, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, as we go behind the lens and below the line with Noted, the Wannabes, the Shouldbes, and everybody in between. And, of course, since we are the second week in July, th- this is a, a bit of an interesting show today. Um... Uh, we're going to be celebrating summer, summer love and summer camp. Uh, at the half hour mark, I am beyond thrilled to have a wonderful filmmaker joining us. Uh, we had the chance to interview a number of years ago for a very serious documentary, A Small Act. Uh, we recently reconnected at L.A. Film Festival where she had the world premiere of an irreverent, but delightful comedy, Fat Camp, Uh, none other than Jennifer Arnold. Jennifer will be here at 1130 to talk all about Fat Camp, which, and I've got to tell you, for those of you that are regular listeners, I think you already heard me mention this uh, during L.A. Film Festival, but right after the world premiere of Fat Camp at LAFF, BET bought the distribution rights for Fat Camp, and it will actually be on BET next week, I believe on the 17th of July, and then available on VOD on July 25th. And uh, one of the things I want to talk to Jennifer about is anticipated editing for the television version um, because of the language and hijinks that we see unfold in in Fat Camp. But I love it. It was one of my must-see festival films, one of my top three picks. Uh, I stand by that, and I think all of you are going to love it when you get a chance to see it. But before you do, you can find out all about it from Jennifer right here at the half-hour mark. But at the quarter-hour mark, you've got summer camp. What about summer love? Summer love is a very important thing, especially after you graduate high school and before you go away to college and you think that the whole world is going to come to an end if you are not with that special someone. And if you go to two different schools across the country, your life and the world will come to an end. Well, thanks to Chris Syvertson, writer-director of Heartthrob, we get to see a summer love unfold in a very twisted, very maniacal and delicious manner, all set to cinematography and visuals that are absolutely stunning. Uh, I can't wait to talk to Chris about Heartthrob, uh, and I think all of you are going to find it equally fascinating. But before we get to them, there is a, a, there is a director who wasn't able to be with us today because 
the world premiere of his film, The Fabulous Alan Carr, is at Outfest this week. Um, Jeffrey Schwarz wanted to be with us today live, but unfortunately he has a function at Outfest pertaining to the film. So that is where he is right now. But we did a very in-depth interview last week. For those of you that, that may kind of know the name of Alan Carr, but you're not quite sure who Alan Carr is, Alan Carr was a star maker. Alan Carr was the man who produced the Oscars that gave us Rob Lowe and Snow White singing at the beginning of it in 1989. Alan Carr is the man that gave us Grease. He was the genius behind Grease. And considering that this past weekend... Uh, slam dance, uh, the street cinema that go, that happens uh, throughout Los Angeles. Greece was one of the one of the screenings. Uh, I think in Sid Cronenthal Park, but I'm not sure. Um, I've seen it so many times that I'm not driving out in the heat with no air conditioning to go see it. Uh, <laughs> but cast was there for a Q and A, and many and all of them. You can also see if you go to my to uh, behindthelensonline.net. Or to uh, Behind the Lens on YouTube, there is my TCM Film Festival interview with the cast of Grease. But Alan Carr is the man that that brought the world Grease and then worked with Sherry Lansing to bring us the anniversary celebrations of it. Unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago. But Alan, he truly was a star maker. And he, he turned the industry upside down. He made things a spectacle. Everything was larger than life, including Alan Carr. So to see Jeffrey now make this documentary, and Jeffrey Shores, uh, classic film fans will, re- will remember Jeffrey and what he did with Tab Hunter Confidential uh, two years ago, an outstanding documentary uh, adapted from Tab's book. Uh, and I can't recommend it highly enough for you. But he also, he is, his bread and butter, as he puts it, has been doing the EPKs, has been doing all the DVD extras that for years, especially in the 90s, 80s and 90s, everybody came to know and love so dearly and so desperately. Jeffrey is the man that put those together. So you all know his work. But now he has segued into... More predominantly doing feature documentaries. In addition to Tab Hunter Confidential, he's done I Am Divine. Uh, he also did an incredible one. Classic film fans and horror fans will love to see, so find it and see it. Spine Tingler, the William Castle story. Uh, but in talking with Jeffrey the other day, one of the first things that I asked him was, why Alan Carr? What was the spark? that said, make a documentary on Alan Carr. And this is what he had to say. When you, after you finished doing uh, the documentary on Tab, you know, in addition to all of the other, you know, short documentary shorts and EPK pieces that you do, all of which generate around the making of, or, you know, going behind the scenes and really digging into what makes people and or projects tick. When did you light on the idea to do a doc on Alan. Well, I didn't know Alan's personal story. Of course, I'd followed his career, his career and, you know, from an early age was obsessed with Greece and knew um, everything about that movie except this person who seemed to be responsible for everything, and that was Alan Carr. 
It wasn't until I read Robert Hoffler's biography mm-hmm. of Alan that came out a few years back um, that was called Party Animals, and that really connected all the dots for me because I knew he had been involved with all these projects, but I didn't know what kind of tied them all together, and I didn't know um, just how tenacious he was and how he was really personally responsible for these touchstones of popular culture, whether they were huge successes or gigantic flops. You know, they're both just as interesting to me. Sometimes the flops are more interesting uh, to me than the than the successes. Uh, but once I read that book, it immediately became apparent that this would make a really entertaining movie uh, because his life is so entertaining and you just get to sort of go on this, this ride through um, uh, uh, late 20th century popular culture. And um, it was also a way to tell a social history of Hollywood and particularly a gay social history of Hollywood that Alan came of age at a time where little gay boys and girls, uh, but in this case, boys would grow up worshiping glamorous movie stars and going to the movies. And it was like, you know, it was it made such a huge impression on them to go to the movies, and they wanted to live this glamorous life. They could identify um, or just lose themselves in, in this in movies. So um, it would also talk about uh, the, the '70s and uh, post gay liberation, how uh, sexual mores were were changing and expanding and there was so much more freedom in the air for somebody like Alan who could take advantage of that, uh, that freedom. And then talk about the AIDS uh, epidemic and how that came along and sort of changed everything and ruined the party literally for everybody. And uh, you could talk about all those issues through Alan's life. Mm-hmm. And also about what the uh, limits of visibility were in the 70s, that Alan could be outrageous and clearly gay and enjoying uh, a freedom that wouldn't have been possible just a few years before that. But the limits of that were that he never really talked about it. I mean, the press right. would never dream of reporting on, uh, on on that side of Alan. Alan never officially, as we call it now, came out. Mm-hmm. You know, he never did a... Uh, uh, he, he never did a... Um, a, a an official moment of acknowledging his, his, his gay life, but it's all in the work. It's all in his movies. So I found that interesting, that it was sort of a pre-coming out era for celebrities, and he was a celebrity, even though he was um, more of a behind-the-scenes guy. He cultivated his own kind of celebrity. Well, you know, he was a star uh, maker yeah. as well as a star himself. You know, he, he knew how to um, create stars. He understood it. He understood how the public could um, respond, a very fickle public could either embrace a star or reject a star. So he specialized in finding people who were not really well established yet, who he saw potential with. Uh, People like Marlo Thomas, who he was an early champion of early Mm -hmm. in her career. Um, Or finding stars that already were stars, but their career had kind of gone off the rails in some way, like Anne-Margaret, who, you know, her career was, I guess her brand was, was, was tarnished from doing all these trashy movies and and he said well no this person really needs um we you know we need to guide this person and sort of bring her back into the public's good graces which he did i mean that was one of the big things that i knew of him years ago was him shepherding Anne margaret back into the limelight mm-hmm. because i was always a huge Anne margaret fan yeah and so was he i mean he loved Anne margaret he he realized that there was so much more to her than she was being and she was she had management who was sort of putting her in all these junkie movies and he he just said we need to you you know you need help you need help and eventually she uh realized that he was right and um alan and 
and Margaret's late husband, uh, Roger, Roger, yeah. Roger Smith. They both got, sort of guided her career and put her back on, put her in Vegas and got her in uh, some, some great movies uh, in, in dramatic roles. They got her, um, they helped sort of make Hollywood aware that she was more than that meets the eye, and Beck Nichols put her in uh, Carnal Knowledge. Mm-hmm. She got an Oscar nomination for that, and that would have been, you know, unthinkable for Anne Margaret to get an Oscar nomination just a few years before. Once you once you hit on this idea and you knew you wanted to tell Ellen's story, and because there is so little actual memorabilia, how did you embark on establishing what your through line was going to be? How did you find a through line? And did that really take shape as you were doing research, as you were finding people to interview? and finding archival footage. Well, the real building blocks of the story uh, were in Alan's life and the way he lived it, and also all of the uh, deep research that Robert Hoffler had done for his book. So that was a really that was the first key for me to unlock the story, mm-hmm. which was Robert's book. I want to give him a lot of credit for that. Um, but then beyond that is how do you take the information and structure it into a story yeah. that is narratively driven? Because my my documentaries are I'm very focused on you know telling a telling a. Uh, telling a story and that these the, the biographical documentaries I've done focus on an individual and they're on a journey and the audience is with them on the journey and they're there for the highs and the lows and so in terms of structure you're finding the beats that uh, push the story forward and, and, and structurally Alan's life really did kind of fit into this uh, dramatic structure that really worked because he he had a goal uh, from early age, what's his goal? His goal is to get to Hollywood. His goal is to um, become a player in Hollywood. What's the next goal? His goal is to get into movies. Okay, Greece. He's going to make Greece. That's his next goal. So he's always like, it's always moving forward, 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 forward. And then um, when he fails, he's got to sort of pick him, either pick himself back up again and move forward, or is this next failure going to be the end of him? And that's actually what ended up happening in sort of the um, midway point or two-thirds point of the film, when the Academy Awards happens, that's that's something that he never really was able to come back from. Uh, even though he had had failures before, he was always able to pick himself up, dust himself off, and move forward to the next move forward to the next thing. With the Academy Awards, Hollywood just wouldn't let him do that. And of course, many of you who are around at the time, or who are stu- who are students of the history of the of the Academy Awards. We'll remember that infamous 61st Oscar ceremony, which was one of the last great spectacles uh, with a huge opening production number. And but this is this is such a big part of the documentary. And because it did lead to the demise of of Alan Carr, I had to follow up with Jeffrey and elaborate on the Oscar situation, which we're hopefully going to get to later in the show, because right now. Our lovely sound engineer today is Pam, and our little red phone has just lit up, and I suspect that it is Chris on the phone, I think. And since she does clips and the phone, I can't do, I can't go into a clip while she's answering the phone. Um, so let's just, let's see. She's looking, oh, it yes, it's him. She's even typing. She did. <laughs> uh, I love having Pam doing engineering for us. It's always wonderful. Uh, can I bring him? Chris, are you there? Yes. Is this Debbie? It is. Welcome, Chris Iverson. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Well, I am thrilled that you could join us on the show today. This this is a and talk about 
you know, it's it's the middle of summer, you know, and we've got Jennifer Arnold coming on later in the show to talk about summer camp with her film Fat Camp. And of course, another big part of summer is Summer Love, which is what your film Heartthrob is all about. Only it sadly is yeah. not, it's not like a, it's not, you know, it's not like Sandy and Danny in Greece for a summer love. This is a little more twisted, shall we say. Yeah, it definitely gets twisted, but I tried to also hold on to as much of a pure love story as possible. Well, you, kind of a balancing act, I guess. Well, I have to, I have to say, number one, you achieve the balancing act beautifully. Um, once you get to your 28-minute mark, things just start just one after another, twist, turn, uh, you know, without giving away spoilers, things happen, quote-unquote. But through it all, what really sells and what carries the whole idea of love through is your cinematography. Your DP, Greg Ephraim, his work is exemplary. Your color palette of using a lot of pink and blue and, you know, the whole idea of boy-girl romance. So metaphoric, so beautifully done. The color saturation through from beginning to end. You feel love looking at your visual tonal bandwidth. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's great to hear. Um, Greg, Greg did do phenomenal work. Um, and from the beginning, we talked about, you know, having the saturated colors and making it a really uh, beautiful film, you know, even when things take a dark turn. <laughs> dark is an understatement. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, yeah. but, but, even, but even there with dark, what I love, because you wrote and directed this, is you plant the seeds for the darkness very early on with the idea that, you know, we have this wonderful couple. We have Henry. And Sam. Henry is nerd personified. Sam is popular, beautiful. Everybody wants her. Um, but Henry really, really wants to get to know her. And one of the first conversations they have sitting on a beach is talking about dark matter. And that to me, I thought that was absolutely brilliant the, to start a film within the first seven minutes to have a conversation like that. That that just spoke volumes to me about, okay, something really great is going to happen in this film. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's that's great to hear. You know, I'm, I'm curious, Chris. Yeah, thank you. Know, where did the idea of this film come from? It's one thing to do a summer love story. Um, it's another to do a horror or thriller story. But the way you've married these these genres and these ideas under this beautiful packaging. I, I, I'm fascinated by it. Yeah, well, I've, um, I've been wanting to, to write a, a love story for a while. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, just personal experiences, uh, you know, in the movie, you know, that I've had some indirect and some more direct. Um, but I was also just really interested in exploring the notion of, uh, you know, love can make us all a little bit crazy. And uh, there's also like a fine line in what can be considered romantic. You know, for example, uh, somebody could send you a red rose every single day. uh, And, you know, if if it's somebody that you are attracted to and you're interested in, that can be considered a very romantic gesture. 
but that exact same gesture, somebody sending you, sending you a flower every day, uh, if it's somebody that is you don't like and you maybe even a little bit creeped out about, creeped out by, uh, that same exact gesture uh, has a totally different meaning. Um, so I was kind of just interested in that in that fine line and, and how when we do fall in love with someone, we can oftentimes overlook things that may be dangerous or or uh, you know unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just kind of all these ideas mixing around. And, and I've also always been uh, really fascinated and just, I've, I really liked the, the whole genre that kind of started with uh, Play Misty for me, you mm-hmm. know, Clint Eastwood's first movie, uh, that basically started the whole kind of obsessed stalker genre, which then really took off with Fatal Attraction and has been made, you know, remade basically uh, continuously since then. Mm-hmm. Um I've always had a lot of fun with those movies, but in almost all those films, there comes a point where the main character becomes completely disinterested in the stalker, uh, and they just become a nuisance. Um, but again, with what I was talking about, you know, kind of trying to explore the complicated nature of love, I was interested in what if that starts to happen, but the person has complicated feelings for mm-hmm. their their person that is obsessed with them, um, and. You know, sometimes they're they're drawn to them, and sometimes they're repelled from them. Um, thought maybe I could kind of explore uh, kind of a, a more realistic take on love within that kind of uh, thriller genre format mm-hmm. was was the 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 attempt anyway. Mm-hmm. And this is where your cinematography comes into play so heavily, um, and is so key because. Everything, you, you balance things out with scenes in the daytime, with the bright sun, the blue skies, the beach. But you get a lot of water shots where you've got the ebb and flow of the water lapping at the sand. At night, you've got stars. Again, we're looking into, you know, the dark sky, but it's always an inky, uh, again, your color palette at night is beautiful with the inky blue-black tones. So you have this balance. And then in between... You take us into a roller rink that has neon lights that's semi-dark. It's not dark. You've got different colored neon lights popping. Um, and it's beautiful on the surface, but what's underneath it? What happens when the, it makes you wonder what happens when the lights come on? And all, I mean, all of this yeah. is so well thought out, Chris. So well designed. When you were writing the script, were you working on these visuals or did you wait for the script to finish and then you sat down with Greg and said, okay, this is how I think we should make this look? Uh, it was some of both. Um, I definitely had some strong visuals in my head while writing the script. The, the roller rink for something is, for example, is always something like a location I wanted to shoot in. Um, they're just so interesting visually to me. And, uh, you know, like that's, it's also kind of like a very old fashioned, uh, first date to go on. Mm-hmm. You know, two kids go to a roller rink and, uh, with the disco balls and the colored lights. And, uh, you know, I kind of wanted to see Henry getting swept away in, uh, this is this beauty of life. You know, he's like, like you were talking about him talking about dark matter. You know, he's always had his eyes on the stars and now all of a sudden he's found something here on earth right in front of him that's just gorgeous and it just blows his mind 
Um, so a lot of those visuals were, were tied into the, the script. Um, you know, I also really wanted to use like the, the beach town and shooting against water. Um, you know, for example, when that, that scene you mentioned when Sam and Henry first talk on the beach, mm-hmm. um, you know, we framed her against the water because even though she's the one that's kind of stuck in this town, you know, she's just going to go to a community college. Uh, in a way, in her head, she's more free than Henry is. So mm-hmm. she, we framed her against the, this wide open water. You know, she's kind of this of nature. And then on Henry's side, he's framed kind of against the rock. Yeah. You know, even though he's the one leaving town, he's kind of caught. He's in his own head, and he's not as free as she is. Um, so some of those ideas were always in the, the you know, in in my mind from writing the script. And then other other ones come through discussions with Greg. And then the other layer is when we do location scouting, and we actually find the real location. Mm. That usually kind of is everything, um, uh, and we can get a lot more specific. Where did you shoot um, this? Because the, the location is absolutely beautiful. I want to go there. I want it to. Was, it's, yeah. it's stunning. It's Tacoma, Washington, which, which is, uh, you know, just like about a half hour south of Seattle. It's mm-hmm. the second biggest city in Washington, and it's, uh, it is very beautiful, and it's got all these uh, the, the water, you know, it's all uh, the Puget Sound, so it's all kind of protected. You don't have like the the big waves, right? Um, which made it a, a lot more conducive to shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's a nice balance because uh, there's so much beautiful nature and everything, but then there's also uh, parts of town that are kind of you know industrial and kind of abandoned feeling. For example, where the the diner where Sam works, right. Uh, you know, it kind of feels like it's in this weird, you know, kind of empty shipping area. Um, so I was really interested in the juxtaposition up there in, of the city in between the beauty and some of the more industrial kind of scary areas and tried to play with both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a great place to shoot. The community really uh, embraced us, and we were able to, um, you know, shoot uh, in a lot of places that... Um, you know, our budget wouldn't have allowed, you know, in other cities. Ah, yes, the the all-important budget. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so let me, yeah, let me ask you, how hard was it to cast Henry and Sam? Your whole cast is excellent, um, but Henry and Sam, they're on screen, I'd say, for 70, 75% of the film, either together or yeah. in frames with other people. But that finding that chemistry, and, and not just a chemistry that works together, but a chemistry that works even when there's friction, and they're pulling apart yet are still drawn to each other, much like a a black hole sucking something in. Um, how how yes. how long did it take you to find Aubrey and Keir? Um, I cast for several months. Um, I talked to both of them I had in mind very early on. And, um, you know, there's always so many variables, like dealing with people's schedules uh, and if we can make it work. But I wanted both of them uh, very early on in the process. And it was kind of a juggling process of of whether or not we could make it work schedule-wise. But I saw a lot of other people, too, just to be thorough and, you know, do 
due diligence. Um, but both of them, like, just kind of as soon as I, I met with each of them independently, uh, and they both just seemed, you know, so right for it. And I think they saw the, the roles as an opportunity to uh, not only, uh, you know, show some skills that they've shown in other movies, but also show some stuff uh, that they haven't really gotten a chance to do before. Like mm-hmm. for uh, Kier, for instance, who plays Henry, um, he, you know, he's normally cast as, you know, the boy next door uh, kind of role. And that's kind of how uh, Henry starts off a little bit in the movie, but then he goes somewhere totally different. So I think he was really excited to get to explore, um, you know, darker sides of the character that he hasn't, you know, not necessarily gotten to explore in other uh, projects he's done before. And he did a fantastic job. Um, and same with Aubrey. Uh, and and uh, the first time I uh, introduced them, I actually took them roller skating together as a, oh. a way to kind of break the ice between all of us. And uh, it was a lot of fun. It was just the three of us roller skating, and uh, they hit it off immediately. And um, just like as we were going around the rink, I could just kind of start to see, uh, you know, the the natural chemistry between them and, and how how it was really going to work. Mm-hmm. But now the big question: Could they both roller skate when you took them roller skating? Uh, Aubrey could. It, it was uh, Kier's first time ever on skate, um, but he he did pretty good. Of course, <laughs> nobody that, got hurt. Of course, that could also explain why he's clutching her hand so tightly going around the rink. It's not exactly. It's, yeah, it, it, it works. Yeah, because <laughs> uh, you know his character is not necessarily someone that would be going roller skating regularly. You know, I think just. In his mind, you know, you know, in kind of an innocent way, he was thinking like, "What can, what, what would be a great first date to take this beautiful girl on?" Mm-hmm. And you know, roller skating came to mind. Uh, so it, yeah, it works out well. You know that he's, he's not necessarily totally comfortable on skates. She is. <laughs> I noticed that right away. I thought that was just perfect. <laughs> Absolutely perfect. Yeah. You know, before I let you go, because I know we've got Jennifer Arnold coming on in a minute, but um, I want to ask you about Jim Dooley and your music. You don't overuse music. Your music is very sparingly used. It's very subtle. It really is just a very low undercurrent. And I found that quite intriguing. Yeah. You know, what led you to that decision to, to you know, hang back? with the music, whereas other filmmakers may have decided to do swells, you know, here and there and kind of lead the audience somewhat or mirror the emotion. You just have it subtly in the background, almost non-existent at points. Yeah, I think it was a conscious decision talking to Jim uh, from the beginning was that, uh, you know, because we are dealing with uh, heightened emotions, romance, uh, you know, and eventually uh, violence. And, uh, you know, we just we just wanted to not have things become bombastic, mm-hmm. uh, but let things you know be, stay more kind of naturalistic and relatable while still being you know lush and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also talked a lot about in certain scenes really being conscious of the music, almost taking the perspective of a certain character. Mm-hmm. So, for example, when Henry is doing 
um, you know, what objectively would be bad things, stalking and worse. Uh, some of the scenes when he's doing that, the music is kind of going the opposite direction right. of what you would expect. And rather than being playing, you know, trying to make it seem dangerous, actually be kind of trying to take on Henry's perspective. And because everything that Henry does in the movie, he's doing out of love. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he is, you know, as, as, as bad as he becomes in a way, he is an innocent character, and everything he's doing, he's trying to do the right thing to protect this relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so we took, we, a lot of times the music would take his side, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. And when he's doing something bad, we tried to make it go the opposite direction and try to make it seem like a beautiful thing that he's doing. Because in his head, it is a beautiful thing. Right. Well, and let's see, everybody, can, Heartthrob comes out, what, tomorrow? Yes, tomorrow on uh, all the COD platforms, I guess. And do we have any theatrical? So do, many of them. Do we have any theatrical, or is it just going to go VOD for now? Uh, just VOD for now, and then um, I think I'm not sure in the coming months. I think it'll open up to more services and whatnot. Well, I can't recommend this highly enough to everybody. It it truly is. It is well worth more than one watch. I can tell you that much. Uh, Chris, I can't thank you enough. This has been an absolute joy. I hope you will come back on the show again. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm so happy that uh, you connected with the movie, and I really like uh, hearing your perspective on it. Oh, so great. Well, I can't wait to see what you do next. So you definitely, you will be back, because I know you're always making films. So... <laughs> Yeah, gotta stay busy. But um, but yeah, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk to me, Dad. Oh, thank you, Chris, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye bye. Okay, take care. Bye. And that was the fabulous Chris Syvertson talking about Heartthrob tomorrow on VOD. Countless platforms. See it. You will fall in love with the film and some of the twisty twisted things in it. And now. My favorite part of summer, camp with Jennifer Arnold. Hey, Debbie. Hey, Jen. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Well, I told you I would. I told you. I had to have you on. <laughs> the, mi- the, minute that it was, uh, wh- the minute it was announced, BET picked up distribution. Yes, we're very, very happy about that. Well, okay, now, I have to have the answer to the big question right away. How much editing are they doing for the BET television version? Well, as you know, there are (laughs) probably 100 swear words in the film, so I know that most of those are going to get covered up. I haven't seen the edited version yet for television. I'm hoping they'll keep as many of the raunchy jokes as we can, but uh, I don't have an answer for you other than... I was trying to pitch that we do some fart noises instead of beeping for the for the swearing. So that's my dream, but I don't think it's coming true. Oh, and see, and that would be perfect because for the very nature of this film and our young camp attendees, it would fit so beautifully. <laughs> I think it would be good. I'd, I don't know if they're going to take that seriously, but I did pitch it. Well, I think that was a very worthwhile pitch because, you know, as I said at the top of the show to people and as I said during L.A. Film Festival after I saw Fat Camp, you know how much I love this film. Um, 
No, I appreciate it. Trust me. You know, this, and as I have described it, it's an irreverent look at embracing oneself on the inside and ignoring naysayers on the outside and set to all kinds of hijinks, um, both from our beloved camp counselor, Hutch, played by Chris Red, and our, our little campers who all go to fat camp. You know, I know, they're the best. How did, to enlighten, to enlighten our listeners here, how did Fat Camp come arrive on your desk? Well, it was a very unusual path for me. I come out of documentary, and I've been wanting to do more narrative. I started in narrative, and I wasn't really looking for a comedy like Fat Camp. But I've known Valerie Stadler, who's an executive producer for a long time, and she's from a company called Fluency. And she and I had, de- had developed a teenage motorcycle project years ago, and we were thinking about maybe trying to get that going. But uh, we hadn't read the script for a long time, and as it turns out, there were eight or nine motorcycle crashes, and the whole thing was outside, and El Nino was supposed to be coming to Los Angeles. And we didn't have the budget, and we, we said, all right, well, let's make a film together. It's not going to be this teenage motorcycle thing, but let's find something. And I'd been in a Fox directing program, and Chuck Hayward, the screenwriter, had been in a Fox writing program. And so we, we came together that way. I read the script. I fell in love with it. It, it seemed like we could get it going, and, and Fluency decided that they could greenlight it. Our only, honestly, our, our biggest struggle was our time frame. We didn't have a lot of pre-production time. And uh, at, at getting the script approved wasn't the hard part. It was, it was really just getting everything ready in time. How long was your pre-production on this? <laughs> oh, gosh. I, two, I, two, two weeks? I feel like it was probably a couple months. It was short. I know that when we started, when we started shooting, we didn't necessarily have all the, the uh, locations or even the cast locked down. But we did manage to lock everything down as we were going. Wow. And, you know, and I have to say, I love, I love where you shot what you used for the camp itself. That's a very cool spot. Did you have that? Well, that's a place in, well, we used two places. We used a place in Malibu mm-hmm. that, um, it's where they shot Wet Hot American Summer. Okay. So it had these cabins and it also had a lot of our locations and, um, we also use Griffith Park, which has a real kids' camp. There's both a boys' camp and a girls' camp, and we use the dining hall from boys' camp. So we stayed in L.A., which was great. Mm-hmm. Does that, did that make it easier for you as a director to have everything relatively centrally located in L.A.? It, it made it easy in a way because we could go look at these locations and figure out how we're going to shoot it, which really helped us with the schedule because it was a tight schedule. And it, it was nice to be home. But, uh, you know, even though I don't live that far from Malibu um, and it's in Los Angeles, we still, I, I got to stay on the location during the shoot for a little bit. And oddly, there's a real-life fat camp. Uh, or it's a health and fitness camp. But at, at the place that we shot, part of the grounds are relegated for a real fat camp. And we stayed in that lodging, which was ironic and a little bit hysterical. But I never, I never got the, the time to go work out. Oh my God, that's that is the irony. There is <clears throat> that is very that's rich, that's rich. So you know, when it came to, when you had to do your casting, who did did you have Chris Red from the very beginning? 
No, we didn't have any casting in place from the beginning, and the character was initially written as a, a white, or he was, he was, I guess he could have gone any ethnicity, but it was based on this guy, Sean Baker, who's white, and um, we had our eyes on Chris. We Popstar hadn't come out, but our casting agents were really talking him up, and when he came in, he just nailed the audition, and we knew he was someone that... At the time, it seemed like a risk because we hadn't seen a lot of his work, but it's obvious that we made the right choice. He's so good in the film. Oh, as Hutch, he is fantastic. And to give the audience a little bit of background, Hutch is now, he's 30-something, he's got college degrees, he's living at home with mom, Played beautifully played by Vivica A. Fox, who is at the top of her comedic game in this film, by the way. <laughs> um, she will have you in stitches, trust me, in stitches. But it comes time. Mom says, bye, Hutch. You're gone. Get a job. Move out. And I think every, all the listeners out there, okay, we've all heard this at some point in our lives. And, but they don't have quite, in real life, you don't get quite the hysterical result that we get with Fat Camp when Hutch is sent off with his Uncle Mike to be a counselor at a Fat Camp for the summer. Because he didn't go get a job. So, you know, this is a cautionary tale, Jennifer. You, did you realize this? You've made a cautionary tale. Well, <laughs> I, don't, I, I guess I was always looking at it for the jokes, but you're right. It is a cautionary tale. And you know what? Let me correct one thing, Debbie. I just said it was based on Sean Baker, mm-hmm. and it's Shane Dawson. I apologize. Oh, that's I'm okay. looking at a... So, so uh, the story initially was based on Shane Dawson, who's white, but... Um, but we ended up casting it with Chris Red. And I mean he is he is fantastic. But the thing is once you get Chris cast and once you get him shipped off to camp where he is totally a fish out of water, an arrogant, very funny, irreverent fish out of water, mind you, then you pair him up with an actual camp counselor played brilliantly by Michael Cienfuegos. Oh my god. Where did you find Michael? Because as Charlie, he is a sweetheart beyond all sweethearts. You just gravitate towards him on screen. He lights up the picture, and he holds his own against Chris. Well, Michael actually had never been in a film before. This is his first film, and I really owe the casting to the casting directors, um, Susan Paley, Abramson, and Justine Hemp were our casting directors, and they brought in Michael. He'd never done anything before. And even, you know, even Chris at the time, he'd done Popstar, but he wasn't uh, very seasoned when it came to, he was a very seasoned comedian, but when it came to, to film, now he's just been working nonstop. At the time, he was newer, so we, you know, we did have a lot of newer people on the cast, and Michael just was perfect. He's the heart of the movie, and I hope that people, when they see the film, are going to give him a lot more work, and I hope to see all these guys become superstars. Well, and, you know, you talk about superstars, and I mentioned Vivica, um, who just, I'm sorry, I I keep going back to Vivica because (laughs) she is just beyond hilarious. Um, And I I really... She's great. I I mean... I hope she was was just an amazing actor to work with, so professional, would, would just give all sorts of variations on takes, Really, really elevated every scene. And, you know, the, the beginning scenes, especially with the slap, I mean, she's just so funny. I, I can't say enough about her. 
like I said, a cautionary tale for everyone out there who's still living at home with mom and dad in their 30s. <laughs> you know, this is, this is what you could get. Um, but then you've got your campers. And this film really does, as good as Chris is, as good as Michael is, this film rises and falls on your campers. If they aren't believable as campers, if they aren't believable with the hijinks that campers pull, nothing else is going to work. That was, uh, you know, I really fought to try to cast actors that were the age of these campers in the script. So in the script, they're all supposed to be 14, and... It would have been easier on us to get 18-year-olds to play 14, but I just thought it would be funnier and it would have more heart if we really had true-looking teenagers. And when they came in to read, I was shocked at how young a 14-year-old really looks, and I was thinking about the lines they were going to have to deliver. But um, I was fortunate that the producers let us, let us cast these kids because they are sort of kids, and they, they had to swear up a ton. But, you know, they're probably doing that anyway. So it probably wasn't that big a stretch for them. The stretch is going to be when their parents see it. You know, we were really lucky because the parents were so supportive and the the parents were great. I mean, they read the script, obviously, Mm -hmm. before they let their kids do it. And it's not that the script is that risque. There's just a lot of swearing. And I I agree with you. I'm sure the kids are swearing anyway. (laughs) You know, how hard was it to find them? But then once you found them, to get them to become the cohesive group that they are ganging up on counselors and before ultimately finding that balance where then they're all ganging up against something else. Finding them, um, it, it was a challenge. But then once each kid came in and we saw them, like it was a sense of relief where we just felt, oh, yeah, this this is our kid. We, like I said, we had an accelerated pre-production schedule, so we didn't have a lot of time. But we were lucky in that everyone we cast in the film was someone that we felt 100% about, and the kids especially. And then, you know, there's a couple challenging scenes in the movie, and we didn't get a lot of rehearsal, but uh, there's, I don't want to give too much away, but, you know, there, there's that dance sequence, and the kids have to sort of be a bonded unit in that dance sequence. And so we started with that scene as something that we were going to practice. And, and I just really wanted those kids to hang out as much as possible. And they became fast friends pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, and it shows on screen. I mean, it is if, and just like in real life, kids go to camp and they bond. For whatever reason, they bond. And some of them remain friends for the rest of their lives. And they look forward to going back to camp the next year to, to be with their pal again, who flew in from wherever to go to camp. There is not a minute you don't believe that these kids are friends. I mean, that, that comes I'm, across. I'm most proud of the um, performances in the film because we did mix a lot of newcomers with, um, with seasoned veterans, and, and sometimes that goes well and sometimes it doesn't. But in this case, the cast really does hang out together in real life, and they still in touch with each other, and they all go to each other's premieres, and... The friendships that were formed on, on this set were real, and that, that makes me proud, and I agree. It shows, shows in the performances, and that's like the number one thing that makes me proud about this movie. You're, you're like a den mother camp counselor, Jen. <laughs> I'm a den mother counselor that swears a lot. Well, you know, you're mimicking your, your, your campers. That's all. It's their fault. 
It's rubbing off on you. That's that's what it is. But now, you know, you mentioned the dance sequence, and I think it's fair we can talk about the dance sequence because it is the poster. It is the one sheet. That's true. <laughs> this dance sequence, I mean, it's your own version of Magic Mike, and all of our campers are in their little gold lame Speedos. Talk about the dance sequence. <laughs> You know, that wasn't initially in the script. So when Chuck and I first met, I read the script. I love the humor. And I, uh, there was a dance scene, but it really had to do more with um, Hutch taking down the other counselors. And I said, you know, let's figure out a way that we can involve the campers a little bit more and something that might be a little bit more of a surprise. And it started as a joke. I started saying, you know, oh, my God, it would be so funny to – like have a scene with the kids in banana hammocks and Chuck just looked at me like, wait a minute, why can't we do that? So we settled on speedos instead of banana hammocks, but we did write that scene into the movie and the kids were, uh, you know, nervous about it, but we started, we started the rehearsal in that early and we made sure that they got in their costumes early and we made sure everyone felt comfortable and we had them practicing the dance every day and, we did have the choreographer from Magic Mike, so uh, we didn't have her full time. She got us set up in the beginning and came in a couple times, and then came there for the dance. And the rest of the the rest of the practice was the kids on their own, and that's a lot of the reason they bonded. But by by the time they did this dance scene, they were so proud of showing off the dance scene. And one of their parents came to me and said, "This movie's been so great for my son because." You know, he's not the strongest when it comes to body image, and now he's up there proud in a little gold speedo. So, it, I don't know. Like, it's it's a scene that, that I think could have really gone horribly, and I'm so happy it didn't. Yeah, and it's and, and to watch that, I mean, the dance itself, and they are tight in their moves. They are really tight. Well, that, that's Allison Falk. She's the choreographer, and she did do Magic Mike, and she's amazing. And, I mean, those kids are fabulous. You know, in that. But then I've also got to give, uh, you know, huge kudos to your editor, to Brad, because, uh, you know, the cuts that you have to cover every one of the boys while they're dancing, you know, you really, you know, you spread the wealth with your editing in this film so that, er you know, all these kids, they're really getting equal time. They really are. Well, Brad is a master of pacing, and he's the one who kept this film going like just just you never have a chance to sort of get bored with the film and and i owe all that to brad and also patty lee the cinematographer you know it was a very accelerated schedule and she's very good at being able to utilize a couple cameras at one time and still get dynamic framing so uh, both of them are responsible for that dancing coming out how it was but you know and speaking of patty the, the cinematography for the whole film you keep it very light the only the only time we get a sense of darkness, and it's not even darkness, but it's a golden umber, is when we get inside the camp as the bo- inside the cabins as the boys are really bonding and coming together. Because you've got the wood, which is casting its own golden shades, but then she move you you guys move the camera in tighter, you make it a little more intimate. But you know, beyond that, you keep the visual tonal bandwidth very light for this film. It you know it really it is it uplifts just like the comedy does, and I find that you know really interesting. You could have toned it down in spots, 
but you didn't. You kept everything on an even keel and didn't take people on this, you know, up down roller coaster ride. You kept it upbeat in the visuals as well as the story. Well, we wanted a lot of that has to do with the fact that we were shooting two cameras uh, most of the time. And and we were trying to find moments where we could be really cinematic, but we also often were struggling with scenes that have six people in them or five people in them. And if you know, if you're a filmmaker, you look at that and you're like, wow, that's a lot of coverage. And with kids, you know, they're only allowed to work certain hours in the day. So it's really sort of miraculous that Patty was able to get our day, get us a lot of takes, and then also keep the film looking how it was because... Without many people, you know, there's there's like three or four scenes in the whole movie that only have two people in it. Mm-hmm. So it was these massive scenes all day long, and often we're doing eight pages a day. And and to to be able to do that and also have a little bit of style to the film is is much more challenging than you might think. Yeah, no, I know it's it's not easy. So and then you know all of the all that footage then falls on you and Brad to sit down and call through. So, I mean, this is truly, you know, a very collaborative effort here between you and Patty and Brad in putting this together for the final product and to have that flow that just you never lag in here. You know, this is a film that you're never wondering what time it is. You're never trying to look at your watch in the dark to see, oh, my God, how much longer do I have? Um, (laughs) None of that. I know you're laughing because you probably do the same thing. Uh, it's, uh, I, I, I am guilty with certain, I mean, I love independent film, but in this case, we were making a film that was a little bit more studio and tone, but with none of the support, like budget-wise yeah. or, you know, or, or schedule-wise of a studio movie, so we were trying to do something that, it was harder than I thought, mm-hmm. you know, um, but it's true, we were, we wanted we wanted to keep it moving, and we wanted to keep it funny, and we wanted to keep it light. Well, you you succeeded on all levels. I got to tell you, you succeeded on all levels. I mean, I have to see it again. Well, I could talk to you all day, Debbie, if you keep talking to me like that. <laughs> you know, I'm curious, because you've done, you come out of documentaries, you started narratives, you come out of documentaries, and now you jump into comedy. So it's not just docs to, to a narrative. It's docs into a laugh-out-loud funny comedy. And everybody knows comedy is not easy. And, you know, the last time that we had talked was for a small act, five years ago or whatever, you know, very quiet, very powerful documentary. What kind of learning curve was there for you between documentary and not just a narrative but a comedy? To me, it really comes down to can I identify with the characters and what they want and is this going to feel honest even though small act is broad and it's you know you wouldn't you'd never look at the characters in small act and say oh yeah that's totally I mean I'm sorry not small act what am I saying fat camp Mm -hmm. fat camp is broad and you would never look at the characters in fat camp and say yeah those seem like real people I mean they're doing broad comedy but for each of those characters, I was really clear on what they wanted and what, what their what their source of pain was and why they were doing what they were doing. And that's really, honestly, not that different from directing a documentary interview. You're really trying to dig down in, in a short time period and get someone to tell you the truth and get someone to comfortable enough to explain something that might be personal or might be painful. 
And even though the timing of something, uh, like the timing of a comedy scene is different than doing a documentary, to me, it really isn't that different. You're trying to get honest performances and you're trying to be true to the material. And in documentary, it's a real story and it's someone telling you their life and you want them to be honest. And, and in Fat Camp, it's, it's um, staying true to that comedic material, but then also digging down for those performances. So I sort of approach it the same way. It wasn't, I definitely did a lot of prep, but I don't feel like I changed my thinking about filmmaking, even though the projects are so different from each other. Mm -hmm. So, you know what, because we're almost out of time, but I've got to ask you, what is the greatest gift that filmmaking, because now you're, you're spanning the genres here, you're spanning, you know, the types of film, narrative, features, documentaries, comedy, what is the greatest gift that filmmaking gives you? For me personally, I want to be a filmmaker because I'm really interested in fostering some sort of understanding and, and making you see the world from someone else's point of view, even in a silly comedy. I like to bring people together. I like people to look at issues or experiences or emotions in a way that they haven't before. And so whether it's bringing a little bit of heart to a raunchy comedy that might normally be a tiny bit more mean-spirited or whether it's looking at some sort of issue through documentary and, you know, in Small Act, it, it was a lot about poverty in Kenya in particular, or how Small Acts can change the world. I just try to get clear on the thematic piece of the film and then make it broad and accessible to people so that people open up a little bit. And, and if we're open, we can understand each other. So it's a little bit of a, I guess, heartfelt, cheesy answer, but that's really why I do it. So now everybody can see Fat Camp on BET next week on the 17th, yes? That is correct. BET the 17th and then VOD on the 25th. 25th. And it's, it's all of the, you know, it'll be all the major players for VOD. It's all of them, yeah. So, you know, and trust me, people, I want to see the BET version just because I want to see how it was sanitized. But I will see, watch again on VOD. I will pay money, Jen, to see this again. <laughs> because I, I, it just, well. I, I just think, because I love it. It is so funny. It makes me laugh, but it makes my heart smile. Oh, my God, Debbie, thank you so, so much. I mean, you if you could see the smile on my face from hearing that. I mean, you are an amazing filmmaker. To see the range of what you've done, I can't wait to see what you do next. Well, I don't, I, I, I can't either. I'm not sure what I'm doing next, but I know, <laughs> I feel like the projects choose me more than me choosing the projects. Well, whatever project it is, you better let me know what it is, and you will be back on the show. <laughs> Gladly. I'll, I'll be here anytime. Oh, Jen, thank you so much. And I will talk to you again thank soon. You. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Jennifer Arnold talking about Fat Camp. So I'm sorry. If you haven't figured out you really should see Fat Camp, it will brighten up your summer. But I am definitely, I, I plan to see the what's shown on BET because I do want to see how it's sanitized. Um, and if they listened to Jen and took her suggestions of putting camper farts in, um, which is so kid-like and would work. Um, but, you know, but then on the 25th of July, please, you will not regret for a second seeing Fat Camp. 
Same thing goes for Heartthrob, which is available tomorrow on VOD on all the platforms. And that is all the time we have today, but for, what, nine seconds. Um, So next week, we have more filmmakers coming to you talking about their latest projects. Until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 